Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy City Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy with simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Rapunzel creates excitement and encourages financial education. Check out their free mobile app and the interviews of Brian and Miles in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Windy City Historians podcast, episode 16, The Great Chicago Fire. So, Patrick, you are a basketball fan, I imagine. Reasonably. Not great. I don't watch pro anymore. It seems like it doesn't count until the fourth quarter. Well, you followed the Bulls in the 1990s when they won the six championships. Oh, sure. That's when basketball in Chicago was fun. Exactly. In the 1990s, if you were traveling the world and you said you were from Chicago, you might hear somebody say to you, ah, Chicago, Michael Jordan. Yeah, Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan. When I was traveling in the 90s, that was one of their first things. And then sometimes it would be bang, bang. (laughs) Right, Al Capone, bang, bang. That was a pre-Michael Jordan response you might hear. I'll tell you what, Chicago has made an impression to the outside world in the last 20 years, in the last 30 years, in the last century. And I believe if you were a Chicagoan in the 1870s or the 1880s who was traveling abroad, what you might hear in response to saying you're from Chicago might be, ah, Chicago, Mrs. O'Leary's cow. Oh, that sounds interesting. I think that just shows how famous or infamous the story of Catherine O'Leary and her cow were and still are today. It was a transformational event for not only the city, but the nation. Right. So when we were planning this Laying the Foundation series, and we were going back and forth as to what topics we would discuss, there was no way for us to do a podcast on Chicago history without talking about the fire. Oh, sure. We've talked a little bit about the stars on the Chicago flag, the first one being Fort Dearborn, and then the second one now is the Chicago fire. You're absolutely right. This makes this episode the second star episode. Absolutely. And we were in luck because for the Great Chicago Fire topic, we were able to talk to Bill Pack. Bill is a real Renaissance man. He's an author, historian, and perhaps most impressively, a magician. Right, and I got the impression that he's done quite a few presentations on the Chicago Fire. Yes, I saw him give his presentation at the Claring Library, and it was amazing. Almost as amazing as his act at the Chicago Magic Lounge at 5050 North Clark. Patrick, have you ever been there? No, I haven't. I haven't either, but I can't wait to go. I also hear, besides the main floor show, is the close-in magic at the bar that is supposed to be fantastic. We were very pleased to have Bill Pack come to the Waveland Island Studios for us to learn more about the Great Chicago Fire. And in fact, just before he arrived, there was almost a fire as well. That's right. Yeah, right. I had these pendant lights above the Waveland Island Studios here and flipped the switch and there was a little puff of smoke and then a flame and apparently one of the transformers for the lights decided to blow up and shorted out, and we flipped that off. So I don't know if that was some kind of an omen or just in keeping with the theme of the Chicago fire. 
The first thing we talked about with Bill was what Chicago was like in the autumn of 1871. In fact, Bill sets the stage very well as to what the weather was like that summer, but also that autumn leading up to the fire. So I think that's a good place to start the interview. Because it was so dry, Chicago is a desiccated husk of a city because there had only been a half inch rain in the last few weeks before the fire. It's the second year of the worst drought Chicago had experienced ever. Wisconsin was having the same problem. There's fires in Wisconsin. Michigan was having the same problem. There's three major fires in Michigan at the same time. Robert Williams, the fire chief at the time, is talking about how the smoke is coming off the prairie around Chicago because there's small brush fires breaking out. And I was reading that between July 3rd and the eve of the fire, there had only been two inches of rain in this whole region. The leaves came off the trees early. The hot prairie winds really sucked the moisture from the wood. The sidewalks were wood. Mm -hmm. That balloon frame that was often built. Houses were wood. Yes. Remember, the places that were brick were often just a facade. It's one brick thick around a wooden frame. The Tribune building described their building as being fireproof. It had wooden floors, wooden doors and door frames, wooden window frames. A lot of them had wooden roofs that were just covered with felt tower shingles. Just to put it in context, a lot of cities throughout history had burned. Like London burned in 1666. Charleston had burned earlier in the, in the 19th century. I believe Boston also had burned. Several American cities had gone up in New York City. Yes. Remember, you're using kerosene for lighting, wood and coal for heating and cooking. Everything's flammable. Candles, oftentimes. Candles. That's the danger of those things. Well, I was reading an account earlier today of Arthur Kinsey, who was a witness to the fire. He's the grandson of John Kinsey, and he was shipping some furniture to Chicago. And his first concern was he wanted to get a warehouse for his items because he was afraid of fire. And you have to know Chicago had a big fire in 39, had a big fire in 57. They had a big fire the day before the Great Fire. Four blocks, I believe. Four blocks, 20 buildings. And isn't that part of the problem, that the firemen were exhausted from that? Technology at the time forces them to fight close to the fire. And that fire, by the way, they fought for 17 hours. They have to fight close because the pumps aren't that strong. This is the Lowell and Holmes planing mill okay. that caught fire. And there's 20 buildings destroyed in a four-block area. It's Van Buren, Clinton, Adams, and the south branch of the river. Oh, So wow. not really that far from where the next great fire would take place. Which is actually will be one of the problems. The fire department at the time was just about as modern as it could be, but they were spread real thin. You know, the week before, there's an average of like four fires a day. Important fires. Four fires a day. And then this Lowell and Holmes planing mill fire comes about, and it's big, and it's dangerous. These blocks are packed tight with buildings. So it's not just the planing mill. There's a furniture factory next door, and there's saloons and shops and everything else, so it's packed in there densely. Tell us how a fire is reported in this era. The courthouse, uh, 100 feet in the air, has a couple, and there's a watchman up there. Uh, There is 172 alarm boxes that spiderweb the city. Can you describe an alarm box? little square box okay. that's put on a, a building or on a corner. It has a, really just a lever in there that you push down, okay. sends a, a signal to the courthouse. They know what number that is, so they know what corner it is, and they'll send fire department into, okay. into that area. And this courthouse is City Hall, what today is City Hall? Yes. It's a Cook County courthouse, jail, and City Hall, and police and fire headquarters. The thing about these boxes is they're locked to prevent false alarms. The keys given to nearby citizens who are deemed trustworthy. So what happens for the Chicago fire is that the fire starts. 
a guy runs to Bruno Gold's drugstore, uh, William Lee. He wants to sound the alarm, but Bruno Gold won't give him the keys. He says that a fire truck has already passed. William Lee goes back to his house, sees it's going to catch fire, gathers whatever belongings, his family. They rush to the west where the fire isn't. At this time, though, at the inquiry, Bruno Gold says after Lee left, he sounded not one but two alarms, which is weird because why would you sound an alarm after he left yeah. if you wouldn't let him do it when he was there? The other thing is that neither of those alarms reached the courthouse. So I don't know what happened to these phantom alarms. My speculation is that he lied. Sure, he's covering his ass. Yes. So let's just set the stage. This is Sunday evening, October 8th, a little after 9 p.m. So no fire trucks are coming. About 9.30, Matthias Schaefer, who's the watchman in the courthouse, will see smoke. He's up in the cupola. But he thinks it's smoldering from the previous night's fire the Lowell and Holmes planning mill fire, because they're not really directly in line. He makes a mistake. Kind of that direction. About a half hour later, he sees flames leaping wildly into the air. He determines the location. Down a speaking tube, he calls down to his assistant, William Brown, who then rings the fire department's nearest to the alarm, or where they think the fire is. But he actually sends the fire alarm about a mile away from where the fire is. So now the fire trucks that are closest to the fire aren't leaving their post, because the fire trucks closest to the other area are. He's going to quickly realize his mistake. He's going to order William Brown to send a second alarm, a closer one to the fire. But William Brown refuses, thinking that the firemen are going to find the fire anyway. So this causes a delay for them to get to the fire. All the other fires before this, the fire departments got there fast enough to put it out, control it as best they could. So how much time has elapsed? 45 minutes. This is a series of fatal errors that's going to set the fire free. Sounds like there's a real stigma at this point of a false fire alarm. I don't know what really causes William Brown's stubbornness about this. Besides having numbers, each fire brigade had a nickname. The two that were first on the scene were Little Giant, after Stephen A. Douglas. Stephen Douglas, Mm -hmm. sure. And the other one was America, named after... America. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) I was hoping I wouldn't have to explain that to you. And they're trying to do what they can. And then finally, about 10 o'clock or so, other fire trucks are showing up on their own because it's almost the block is on fire. So Patrick, in the narrative thus far, the fire has been raging for about an hour, but nowhere in the story have we heard about the O'Leary family from DeCoven Street, specifically Catherine O'Leary and her famous cow. Right, which is integral to the story. So we have to ask Bill about the role of the O'Learys in the story so far. So let's go back to the interview. So there's two stories about the O'Learys at this point. One is that they were asleep because they had a dairy business in the neighborhood. They had to get up early in the morning, milk the cows. The other is that they had some guests over that night. The wife, Catherine, was walking the friends off. And Patrick was kind of shuttering the windows, and he sees a fire. Either way, they start dumping water on their house. As we know, in a bit of twisted fate, their house survived with little damage. And so the fire is spreading. More fire trucks are coming on there. The fire marshal, Robert Williams, shows up. He sends another fireman to Bruno Gold's drugstore to sound a second alarm. Guy runs over there, hits the alarm, runs back. But he, too, has made a mistake. Because to order a true second alarm, you're supposed to press the button several times. But that alarm does reach the courthouse, unlike Bruno Gull's two phantom alarms. 
And so they think at the courthouse that this is just an alarm telling them about the original fire, and they never call out the second alarm. As far as I know, what I've read is they have like three alarms at this time. So the first alarm brings the brigade from the immediate area to the area of the fire. The second alarm has the fire brigades further out move into the vacated area. And the third alarm is bring all available equipment. Firefighting strategy is simple at the time. You surround the area. You pour water on the entire area, whether it's burning or not, and hope you can keep it from spreading. Do these trucks have water in them? We have a system of fire hydrants we at do. this point. Okay, okay. Although in the west side, they're the smaller, the four-inch fire pipes, so it's not as much water. In fact, if one is really pumping, they're pumping 600 to 900 gallons of water with these steam engines onto the fire a minute. But if one's pumping, nobody else can really use that hydrant. They have to go and find other hydrants. Mm -hmm. The water pumping station, the water tower is supplying a system of hydrants across the city, which is really a modern thing. And they bragged that they could pump the entire lake into the city if need be. <laughs> but there's a problem because the pumping station itself has a wooden roof only protected by thin slate tiles. And I know from reading that, just to jump ahead, I think the pumping station stops working about 3 a.m., Yes. Yeah. The story is that a city employee sees a 12-foot piece of wood flying in the air, narrowly misses the water tower, falls onto the water pumping station's roof, cracks the slate tiles, the fingers of fire pry through, rip it apart. Once the machinery stops, the only water that's left is the dead water in the mains and in the water tower. And once that is exhausted, the streams from the firemen's hoses will dwindle and die, and Chicago will be utterly helpless. We're talking about the water tower yes. that survived, obviously. Mm -hmm. Yes. There are places where they could get water, like they can pump water from the lake. There's a couple famous stories about that, but that's far into the fire. The other thing that happened before the fire is that the fire department wanted a building inspection department to be formed. They wanted metal roof requirements for the large buildings. They wanted more firemen. They wanted more water mains, bigger water mains. They needed more hose. They were really short on hose. That hose deteriorated very quickly and became a problem. They wanted fireboats with powerful pumps. And each and every one of those requests was denied by city government that said that higher taxes would stifle business. So let's go back to that second alarm fire. And now it just keeps spreading. There's a wind that's up to 30 miles an hour coming off the prairie, pushing it north and east towards the lake. So it's a southwest breeze. As a sailor, a southwest breeze will usually hang in there for sometimes days at a time. It usually blows pretty hard. Right. And I do know that, like William Ogden, much later in his life, it was the wind that he remembered most, how freakish it was. There is also another occurrence that happens. You'll hear witnesses say they felt like the wind was coming from every direction. So what happens is when this superheated air rises, it leaves a low pressure underneath, which is sort of a vacuum. Yeah. And it will suck in the cooler wind from every direction into that vacuum that wind kind of slams against each other. It becomes turbulent, it'll spin, and that creates literally tornadoes of fire that will rise a hundred or more feet in the air, pick up flaming embers, pieces of wood, and fling them many blocks away. A firebrand is flown into St. Paul's Catholic Church, which is four blocks behind the firemen's lines. So they send a hook and ladder to St. Paul's, other firemen trying to move ahead to cut off the advance. Many of the men from across the river in Connolly Patch, which was the major slum at the time, come over the river to enjoy the entertainment of it. An Irish woman asked someone what was burning, and they told her it was the church. She said, oh, God will put it out. But within minutes, the roof caved in. Oh, wow. And really, just almost two hours in, 20 blocks crackled and roared. 
Every building's rail cars, everything was burning. There are 600 miles of wooden sidewalks, some of them five feet high. Fire is like a living creature. It needs to eat, needs to breathe. And so this place under the sidewalks, well, that provides oxygen. It's like a horizontal chimney. Hibachi grill or something. And then underneath there is the dried leaves, Mm -hmm. dried horse dung, which is very flammable. So there's plenty of fuel and oxygen for it to breathe there. You also have to remember there's 55 miles of pine block streets. They're like paving stones coated in coal tar and set in the streets. So the streets will burn. The rivers will catch on fire because they're grease and oil slicked. Amazingly, most of the boats were towed to safe harbor, so we didn't really lose our shipping capacity. The 17 five-story tall grain elevators bursting with flammable grain, plus mountains of coal in the yards of the industrial buildings. All the woodworking factories were a center for wood manufacturing at the time also. Sawdust, wood chips, which ignite under the smallest spark, Mm -hmm. are the real problem there. Chicago like specialized in the production, selling, and storage of combustible goods. Alfred T. Andreas said Chicago was built as if to invite its destruction in this manner. And they knew it. The Tribune wrote about it, said we'd become immune to this because the fires had been put out so speedily. But at any moment, a fire could hit the city and sweep from end to end. And that was just printed hours before the actual fire happened. So we've had a series of mistakes that's caused this fire to grow. It's gone to St. Paul's Church. By the way, adjacent to the church is a shingle mill a box factory, a furniture company, and of all things, a match factory. I thought you were going to say a fireworks factory, too. (laughs) Close enough. It it really is close enough. Gunpowder would probably be the only thing worse, right? This is terrible. And what happens then? I should say, before that, people that were in the South Division, the river divides the city into three main parts. South Division contained the main business district, the most expensive buildings in the city, half the entire property value of the city. But it also contained the worst slums and vice districts in the city, including Connolly Patch, described in the newspaper as a collection of the dirtiest, vilest, most rickety, one-sided, leaning forward, propped up, tumble down, sinking fast, low-roofed, miserable shanties. (laughs) (laughs) Say that three times fast. Uh, The North Division was really the finest residential district. And across the T of the river, the West Division, there were industrial areas that dotted the riverbank, surrounded by immigrant neighborhoods that were really only one step above the slums, mm-hmm. and those people provided the industry machine what they needed. So fire starts in the West Division. People in the South Division are looking that eerie red glow, but they're not worried because the river is an impassable barrier. They have nothing to worry about. They just were kind of going about their everyday business. But by 1130... A flaming mass flew over the river onto the unoccupied, luckily, $80,000 horse stable for the Parmalee Omnibus Company. A burning shingle would hit open tar tank at a roofing company next door to that. And then a sheet of fire would spread to the Chicago Gaslight and Co. Company at Franklin and Adams. Now, by the way, I've already talked about people that made mistakes. I want to talk about one that didn't. And that's Thomas Okerley, who was the night superintendent of the gas company. Mm-hmm. Even before the fire jumped the river, he recognized the danger. He emptied the south side reserves to the north side reserves, thus preventing a catastrophic explosion. But when the firemen got to the place, they didn't realize this. What, and they refused kind of- to go in and fight the fire, even though he was trying to tell them that the gas wasn't there anymore. Wow. Jeez. So he's one so, of the few heroes here. Yes. The gas that's left in the pipes and stuff will just bleed out when the joints melt and burn off. And then the South Division will be plunged into darkness. 
Horace White, the editor of the Tribune, had gone to bed because he didn't think anything of this. And then he hears the bells ringing for a general alarm, which said this was a great fire now. And when he wakes up, it's five blocks from his house. He lives on the south side, about where Congress in Michigan is now, because remember, Michigan was the lakeshore Lake at the yeah, time. Okay. Yeah. There is a row of houses, and very Tony and Horace White and a couple of the other owners of the Tribune live there. Where's the fire now? At this point, the fire is going through the south, and it'll around the gas company is Connolly Patch. And so that area of tenements and stuff will just go up very quickly. The fire is gluttonously devouring the slum. And a lot of the men were over watching the other fire, so they're not home. The women and their children are running from their houses, grabbing whatever possessions they can. Many of them thought it was going to be the end of the world, that it was really a cleansing of biblical proportions. What were the bridges that were being used at this time? Well, there's many bridges across. What was happening on the west side, like Madison Street? Because I know Patrick has a great story about the west side. There are a couple of newspaper stories about the Madison Street Bridge and I think also the Lake Street Bridge that we told in the documentary called Chicago Drawbridges that I did with Stephen Hatch. Several heroic bridge tenders, most notably Ira Boyer and his son Charles, continued to work the Madison Street Bridge helping the terror-stricken people across until the very hair on their heads was singed by the flames. Another, Martin Casey at Lake Street, held the bridge to get people across despite repeated orders to open the draw and save the bridge. Recruiting some 50 men, they broke into a nearby hardware store and secured pails, ropes, axes, and crowbars to drench the bridge with water, dig trenches, and tear up the wooden approach planks. Fighting the flames to maintain the crossing, they did not cease until every last soul was safely across. Money was set aside almost right away after the fire for the eight bridges to be rebuilt, which were completed by 1872. And it was amazing to me how here you have a third of the city homeless, and yet because the bridges are so important, those were one of the top priorities for rebuilding the city. Bridges are mostly wood with some iron, but they're pretty much all wooden truss swing bridges. So mm -hmm. they have a center pier in the middle of the river that's on masonry, and then there's a turntable, a modified basically railroad turntable, and then the bridge itself is basically all wood, and it then rotates in a horizontal fashion, 180, 90 degrees to open the river for ships. And there's also times where they need to open the bridge to allow ships to get out onto the lake and, and get away from the fire as well. So it must have been just horrendous. Did any ships catch fire? Certainly they did. We were able to tow most of ours to safe harbor. So the fire is at the gas works now. It's already consumed Connolly's patch? Yes. Okay. Again, they thought that the fire would be stopped. The courthouse, the Haya Schaefer and his relief watchmen stay there. With other men, they get on the roof and stamp out errant fires. His clothing caught fire more than once. But finally, a piece flies into the cupola, starts a fire there. Again, some wood shavings left behind construction. The men on the roof were told to go. He finds out that the stairwell down from the cupola is barred by fire. He has to slide down the banister, burning his hands, his, scorching his face and whiskers in the descent. I think it's about 1230 at night. He will start the machinery in the operations room, which will ring the bell automatically. And then he goes down to the basement jail cells to tell them the building's on fire. They already know because smoke is pouring in. The warden doesn't know what to do. 
but a police captain named Michael Hickey comes in, takes charge. The prisoners that were charged with murder, him and his crew, they chain them together and they will ultimately escort them to the north side lockup and okay. secure them. The ones that aren't charged with murder, they will release. Yeah, so that's your lucky day. Yeah, your, uh, some of the yeah, but then something. you got to run from the fire. Right. Yeah, it's like good luck to you. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It takes about a half hour, and the giant courthouse bell will collapse. There's one story that I talk about in the program, this 12-year-old girl, Claire Innes, who years later wrote about the fire, and they were going to take the Clark Street Bridge over the river because the river was wider and they'd be safer, uh -huh. so they were told. Claire Innes talks about their pack going towards Clark Bridge, and then people stop. And then she sees the awning of a building catch on fire. Then people start pushing against them and start turning around and pushing them in the opposite direction. And she said she felt like a leaf in a great rushing river pushed along in this because it's just, you're going everywhere. A fireman said the fire fell like red rain. Another one said you couldn't see anything over you but fire. Claire Innes talks about how she had to shield her eyes so she wouldn't be blinded by the hot ash. The fire truck scattered. They weren't really organized as well anymore. They were scattered all over the place. Robert Williams would take one to a, a bridge crossing, the State Street Bridge crossing. There was an Iowan who was in town, and they talked about escaping over the State Street Bridge amid a shower of coals. And they said that the crowd thickened every moment, women with babies in bundles, men with kegs of beer, all jostling, scolding, crying, or swearing. You have to have your priorities in a fire. Right? The streets were clogged with horses and people screaming and drays very slowly moving. It was hard to get around. Well, you were asking about what was happening on the west side of the time. Yeah, At this right. point, the fire has pushed out of the west side. There's still stuff burning and smoldering, and fire trucks are doing the best they can out there also. But because of the wind pushing it, it's not really spreading south. It's not really going west. Everything is that one direction. Even south, like on Congress, Congress in Michigan and the Wabash in that area, that is stopped. So about 1.30 a.m. at this point, the fire will jump the river moving north. It takes about another half hour or so for it to really take hold. And now it's relentlessly moving almost directly towards the water tower. A New York alderman that was visiting Chicago at the time, Alexander Freer, he talks about seeing the rail of a bridge break. People are in the middle, rail of the bridge is broken away, people are falling into the river. He saw one man disappear under a load of clothing. So some of the unaccounted for dead might have drowned and been washed away also, rather than necessarily even burned up in the fire. And ironically, I think the death toll was 300. 300, but only 120 are recovered, bodies or portions of bodies. Yeah. Only three of those are claimed. 117 of those are unclaimed. Oh, my goodness. They were buried at the Cook County Poor Farm and Insane Asylum, which is now Reed Dunning Memorial Park. And there's a plaque there commemorating them. Now, one of the churches that the fire missed was Old St. Pat's, which is at Desplaines and Adams. The fire kind of misses that. Sometimes you'll see that sort of thing where they miss things. And that's oh. actually a brick, a masonry building, too. Okay, here's a building that is pre-fire. Aren't too many within the loop that are remaining... Right. The building I work at, City Hall, was destroyed, the old courthouse. We were at the Newberry Library the other day. That was a residence. William B. Ogden's brother, Mahome. Ah, I, was, I did not know that. That was his home, which survived, actually. William B. Ogden's home got destroyed. And as we know, his entire lumber business got destroyed because that was Peshtigo, Wisconsin. And that happened the same exactly time? Exactly the same time. And that's another weird thing I wanted to ask you about, because I know a lot of fires happen about the same time on both sides of Lake Michigan. Yes. 
And Peshtigo is about 180 miles due north as the crow flies. It's just weird that it would all, boom, start up like that. The fact is, all three states, they all suffer the same drought. They had the same kind of winds. Well, you have people who have weird theories about that, like meteors and comets, which is just baloney. They ignore basic science. So Patrick, Bill Peck was talking about one theory which he totally dismisses of a comet possibly causing the Great Chicago Fire. Right. Now, this theory got some exposure in 1985 when author Mel Waskin wrote a book titled Mrs. O'Leary's Comet that argued that a comet was the cause of the Great Chicago Fire. And at face value, this theory has a certain appeal as the fires sparked that evening of October 8th, 1871, they happen about the same time, not only in Chicago, but also in Wisconsin, up at Peshtigo. Sure, you can imagine sort of a meteor shower where different bits coming out of the atmosphere, they're hot, they hit some around the Great Lakes and cause multiple fires. And just Chicago being the biggest city on the lake, that gets all the press. And so the other fires aren't necessarily known unless you start to dig into it more. And these fires kind of lit right about the same time. So there is sort of an interesting appeal to that theory well, as luck would have it, knowing that we were going to do a podcast on the Great Chicago Fire, we had the opportunity, as you remember, to ask a real astronomer about this. That's right, Mark Hammergren. We were at the Adler Planetarium and interviewed him. So let's go to the part of the interview where I had just asked Mark Hammergren about this Chicago Fire comet theory, and then we'll go back to the interview with Bill talking about Peshtigo and the related fires. There was a popular level book that was written a few decades ago where this uh, author, he postulated that based on some anecdotes, people who reported these balls of fire that seemed to be generated in the Chicago fire, he thought that what happened is you had a comet or fragments of a comet, an icy object containing oftentimes frozen hydrocarbon gases, frozen methane, that kind of stuff, hit the earth, burst into flames and start these fires. And since then, been a very popular idea among certain parts of the general population. But there are a few problems with it. Number one, comet impacts or asteroid impacts simply don't happen that way. They don't burst into flames, although it looks like that. What should have happened had there been a comet impact hitting the atmosphere going 20 kilometers a second, exploding with such force. These things move so fast, when they hit the atmosphere, it's like hitting a brick wall. They'll break up into millions of fragments, each one of those becoming its own little meteor. A huge, huge fireball appears in the sky. The incoming fireball would have been many times brighter than the sun. That was never reported. Even small meteors, only a few feet across, will create tremendous sonic booms. When you get bigger ones, the booms will be loud enough to shatter glass. That the happened one in Russia. over Chelyabinsk in yeah. Russia back in 2013. Broke mm -hmm. windows in more than 6,000 buildings. 1,600 people were sent to the hospital from that. So those are the kinds of observed effects that you would have from any kind of comet or asteroid impact. This area was very populated. If something like that had happened, it would have been observed, it would have been seen, it would have been noted. And physically, it just doesn't behave that way, where you get flaming balls of gas starting fires, bouncing around, doing that kind of thing. Plus, this is a city on a lake, so imagine if that happened, there would be a tsunami-type effect with the waves. If it had come in over the, the lake, that might very well have happened, yeah. Put out the fire. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> the 
Peshtigo Museum there, they have an account from a minister that talks about the common brush fires. This is lumber area, so forest fires just break out, and there were some brush fires whipped up into a large forest fire. Same thing with the three fires. There's the Huron, the Holland, and the Manistee fires in Michigan. All lumber areas whipped up. Same day. Same day. And the best way to even think about Chicago is go to YouTube, watch some of the videos of the forest fires that go on in California. That's exactly what it looks like. We have lots of pictures before the fire, lots of pictures after the fire, but none of the fire in progress that we've found. Camera equipment was really hard, cumbersome to set up, may have not worked in the intense heat in excess sometimes of 2,500 degrees. Dealing with chemicals. They're glass plates, so that might not have survived the moving from one place to another as you're running away from the fire. So we have all sorts of paintings, and some of them I thought were more fanciful. But now when you see the fires in California and stuff, and you see how high the flames go and the fire tornadoes, now you can really get a feeling of what people were dealing with. The accounts I've read, it's the glow that they talk about. Yeah. It was so eerie that they never forgot it. Right. So now the north side is on fire, State Street, Kinsey Street. This is the Hoi Polloi. That River North area. Yes. The North District. So now the rich people are getting burned out. The Shanty Irish, okay, they got burned out. The people in Connolly Patch, fine. But now the rich people are getting... That's probably why this fire is so famous, because it really covers all classes. Yeah. Of course, because of that prejudiced view, it felt that the people who were a better class of people would be calm and law-abiding in the face of an emergency, but it was anything but that. Your house catches on fire, what did people do? They didn't just leave their house. They actually took out as much of the furniture and stuff as they could because they figured the house is going to burn, but we can at least save the furniture. Let's get the silver. But in this case, for the Great Chicago Fire, this is a hindrance because it clogs the sidewalks and the streets uh, with furniture. Right. Oh. Stuff. So it makes it difficult to pass. More fuel. More fuel spread out all over the place rather than concentrated in just the houses. So Alexander Freer, one of the things he talks about is just people running back and forth in all directions and intercepting each other as if deranged. He says that he saw a woman kneeling in the streets with a crucifix held up before her, praying while the hem of her skirt burned and a runaway truck dashed her to the ground. Isaac Arnold, who was one of the city's fathers, he was just beginning to write a biography on Abraham Lincoln. He had a private library of some 10,000 books. He had 10 thick volumes of letters from Lincoln, McKellen, Seward. He had some of the most expensive paintings in the city. He sends his family away, stays with his housing staff. They take the rugs and blankets, put them on the roofs, soak them with water, stamp out the fires. But when the water pumping station stops pumping, in trying to save everything in his house, he saved nothing. And so when you think about those 10 thick volumes of letters from those major people in our history, and you wonder what history has been lost there, it breaks my heart every time I think about it. And just like the Chicago Historical Society, the entire place went down and they had one of the original copies of the Emancipation Proclamation that was destroyed in Lincoln's walking stick. Well, I know one of the things I had looked for is the ledger book that John Kinsey kept of his trades. That ledger book was in there that got destroyed in the fire as well. Imagine what would have been there with, oh my God. with all those trades. McVicker from mm-hmm. McVicker's Theater, he was writing a history of Chicago. It got destroyed in the fire, and afterward he just didn't have the heart to do it. So you think about, again, all those stories and all that knowledge that we've lost because he couldn't restart doing that story. Yeah. 
So, Patrick, this is a good spot to drop in and talk about how the Chicago Historical Society burned in the Great Chicago Fire. And as Bill said, the final draft of the Emancipation Proclamation was destroyed. So before signing the Emancipation Proclamation, the one you can see in Washington at the National Archives, there was a draft, and it was literally a cut-and-paste job with sections of the printed proclamation pasted onto other sections. Sure, they put them up in typeface. With this draft from the 31st of December, 1862, this was a working copy, and this was in Lincoln's possession. In Chicago at this time, there was a ladies' society that was raising funds to help aid the wounded soldiers returning home from the Civil War. This society reached out to President Lincoln asking if he would donate this draft copy of the proclamation so that they could put it up for auction for fundraising purposes. And Lincoln, in fact, did send it to them, and he wrote the following note, quote, The formal words at the top and the conclusion, except a signature you perceive, are not in my handwriting. They were written at the State Department. The printed part was cut from the preliminary proclamation and pasted on merely to save writing. I had some desire to retain the paper, but if it shall contribute to the relief or comfort of the soldiers, that will be better. Your obedient servant, A. Lincoln. This is the one that was destroyed in the Great Chicago Fire. But Patrick, that's not the end of the story. Yeah, tell us. Gary Johnson, the president of the Chicago History Museum, was doing research on this destroyed Emancipation Proclamation. Right. He discovered that there was a photographer named Anthony Berger who had taken 13 photos of Lincoln while he was president. Two of them, in fact, became the model for the Lincoln profile on the penny. Oh, interesting. And the other photo was the one that you see engraved on the $5 bill. Oh, there you go. Several decades later, Berger wrote a memoir of his life and his photographs of Lincoln. And as Gary Johnson discovered, in this memoir were photographs of this draft Emancipation Proclamation, the same one burned in the Great Chicago Fire. Ah, before it got sent to Chicago. Apparently, after this draft was signed by Lincoln, it was photographed by the government office. However, it seems that these photographs, or at least their connection to Chicago, were just forgotten. I'd like to thank Gary Johnson for sharing the story with me because I think it's just a terrific mystery solved. It's pretty cool that you can rediscover old history at almost any point with enough digging. So the fire, as I recall, it only burns as far as Fullerton. And then Lincoln Park was a cemetery, I believe. What happens in Lincoln Park is people are either going that way or they're trying to go west, and they have to go through the city cemetery, which is the, the part directly north of the Chicago History Museum today. You know, the couch mausoleum is still there. In fact, as a side note, they still think there's probably 13,000 people buried under there. They were disinterring the graves at the time. People were jumping in the empty holes to get away. Okay. A lot of the wooden cemetery markers were burned during this. But then they would end up at Lincoln Park, which wouldn't burn. That was kind of one of the safety places for it. The newspapers talked about the McCormicks and the North Side elites camping out on the bare ground next to the lowliest vagabond and the meanest harlot. <laughs> you know, as as the fire is some great leveler yeah, right, of these classes. Right. Like it was kind of a Woodstock. Yeah. Did anyone go to the lake? Yes. I recently heard one story that even the Lincolns, Mary Todd Lincoln and her son, Robert Todd Lincoln, were in town and they went to the lake. I know that hundreds of people 
waded into the waters of Lake Michigan, the air almost too hot to breathe. They would stamp out the sparks as it would ignite their hair and their clothing. There's a story of one woman catches on fire. Her husband dunks her under the water. After he puts that out, she begs him to drown her rather than let her be burned up. Oh, God. It's hard not living through something like this to imagine what you had to go through. Being that close would be pretty unbearable. I'm also often attracted to the bizarre or unusual. So there's John B. Drake, whose Tremont house burns. But as he's going south, he sees a hotel, and he goes in and offers to buy it. The $1,000 they had in his pocket, he gives the guy. And the guy goes, well, this place is probably going to burn anyhow, so I'm going to take the money. (laughs) The place doesn't burn. (laughs) Oh, no. So Drake comes back and wants to finish the deal, and the guy's like, screw you, get out of here. So in typical Chicago fashion, Drake will return with a couple heavy-duty friends of his who give him a limited amount of time to pack up and leave, or they'll take care of business the Chicago way. He renames it Tremont House again, and of course his children end up opening the Drake Hotel. God, this is such a great story, because I love going to the Drake. And that hotel is saved because two fire trucks come to the lake, one of them pumps the water from the lake to the other fire truck, and that fire truck douses the hotel. Tell us about the Palmer House. Well, we know that Palmer House was being built, supposed to be fireproof, but destroyed. Not far from it, there was the new $800,000 Grand Pacific Hotel that was just awaiting its roof, Mm. destroyed also. Really didn't spare much. Marshall Field, he carted off about $600,000 worth of merchandise from his store, but another $2.5 million worth burned. Wow. And remember what Potter Palmer said after it burned out, build it again. Yep. That's the real Chicago spirit. Yes, it is. About 6 a.m. Monday morning, it's burned for nine hours, but there's no end in sight. And the mayor, Roswell B. Mason, will send telegrams to all cities around. Chicago's in flames. Send your whole department to help us. We'll get aid from all over the country. Of course, it takes hours, days. But some even take great risk to their own cities. Milwaukee put three steamers and their crews on a train, leaving their city with only one working engine. The whole city of Milwaukee, which is suffering the same dry conditions. Same dry conditions, had the same risk of fire, something like that. And even before the fire is completed, Cincinnati's sending lumber to Chicago. About 11 p.m. Monday, it's burned for 27 hours, and then they start feeling a little drizzle. Rain has finally come, and it's doing what the firemen could not. And the thing is, is that after the fire ran out of city, it would have continued unabated across the dry prairie if it weren't for that rain. About 3 a.m., it turns into a downpour, finally puts out the fire. Although pockets of fire will burn for months afterwards, especially in the big coal piles. Now, once this is finished, a new drama begins. There's 100,000 people. One-third of the city's population is homeless. Many of them are separated from their families, so they're looking for them. They're scrounging up food. I saw broadsiders that night from Rockford where they were collecting cooked food to send to Chicago to feed people. So they're wandering around trying to get their bearings. There's no landmarks anymore. There's no street signs to deal with. I have trouble looking at those photos because I don't know what I'm looking at. The caption will say State and Madison, but it's just rubble. Right. Yeah. Right. It is uh, quite amazing. Now, what about the infrastructure, like the railroads? The Illinois Central Depot was burned, right? Yeah, but the the trains still could come to Chicago. Okay. So the rails weren't really destroyed. So, Patrick, one of the things that the Great Chicago Fire did was create tourism, disaster tourism, so to speak. Oh, people rubbernecking in the day. 
Yeah, people came to Chicago to witness what they heard about, this terrible event. Right, well, like moths to the flame, right? Yeah, and the trains were running, and so folks could get here. And one of the signs of tourism is souvenirs. Oh, yeah. There was quite a business in the selling of fire relics. Oh, interesting. I mean, totally makes sense, so. It's sort of like going to the Vatican. You know, you're going to buy a rosary or you're going to buy some holy water. I mean, you just kind of have to. So if you're going to come to the Chicago Fire, you got to buy some melted nails. Sure, sure. Or some marbles melted together like we saw at the Chicago History Museum. Yeah, I would imagine any kind of example of that extreme heat that was generated by that fire would have been something extremely novel. Melted glass and you know, half-melted bottles, things like that would probably be a pretty cool find, right? Oh, absolutely. And of course, one of the most iconic relics from the fire was the bell in the cupola of the courthouse where City Hall stands today. Oh, right on Clark Street, an earlier version of City Hall. The cupola held this bell that would warn people of fires and whatnot, and it came crashing down, and of course, this became the ultimate souvenir. So let's go back to the interview where we asked Bill about that. Does anyone know where that bell is? That bell was melted down. A uh, guy bought it, melted it down, and made all sorts of souvenir pins. So what happened after the fire, too, kids would dig in people's basements and stuff, what was left, and dig out, like, melted-together plates and silverware and stuff and sell them to tourists because we still had some hotel space and stuff left. And people were flocking to Chicago to see the carnage. So there was a brisk trade in fire relics. You wonder if somebody years later could go in their attic and find a few together spoons, and they're like, what the heck is this? And throw it out, and they don't realize that it's a fire relic. If anyone is listening who has that in your basement or attic, give Bill a call. I remember going to the Chicago History Museum when it was called the Chicago Historical Society. Yes. When I was a kid and seeing that famous bunch of marbles melted together. And as a kid, I thought that was just so cool. Yeah, they have the metal outside of there now that is melted. It's in the bushes. you got to find it. It's really lost in there, but they have that. They have an excellent display on that, and all the dioramas. I always like the dioramas, and they have the fire diorama and stuff. The rebuilding takes about two years, the recharging of the economy. But the year after the fire, the stockyards handle twice as many hogs as the year before the fire. William Bross, the owner of the Tribune, takes the first train out to New York to drum up money to rebuild and buy new presses and to spread the gospel of Chicago's imminent explosion of growth. And he would tell reporters, write this down, women, send your men to Chicago. Mothers, your sons, wives, your husbands. Chicago's going to be built bigger, greater than ever before, and there's money to be made there. And the newspapers printed that. Wow. The the 1874 fire destroys about 18 blocks in the business district. They start rebuilding Chicago, and in the rush to rebuild, it looks a lot like the city before. The city council doesn't really enact much new legislation. It will take a fire at the southeast end of the business district, and only because there's not as high winds and it reaches a wide street that it stopped, but it wipes out 18 blocks. But it's only then where they really decide to enact. You can only build stone and brick buildings in a certain area and things like that. And the reason our building code is so strict is because of the Chicago Fire. Because as I understand, no insurance company would insure anything in the city unless and until they came up with a building code. Even before the fire, I just had recently found some stuff about it. And Lloyd's of London would refuse to give any insurance to Chicago before the fire happened, because they saw the city as being so dangerous. And our building code to this day is very, very strict. 
So about $190 million worth of property is destroyed in the Great Chicago Fire. There's about $88 million worth of insurance claims, but only half of those are paid out because the insurance companies go bankrupt under the weight of the debt. Was there corruption involved, do you think? In Chicago? (laughs) I am shocked. I'm shocked to think that there's corruption going on in Chicago, (laughs) to paraphrase uh, Casablanca there. Of course there was corruption as part of it. They have that kind of laissez-faire kind of hands-off type of thing. And that's, Chicago was like that for a very long time. It was mostly hands-off on a lot of things. It was all about business. Which allowed that corruption to fester in many ways. It was a wide-open city, but that also helped create an atmosphere where our culture was different and more free and we could develop Chicago-style literature and Chicago-style architecture and we could create those things. So what strikes me is 22 years later after the fire, we have the White City, the World's Fair. Yes. We as a city rebounded within a generation. That's unbelievable. At Belmont Avenue, there's a statue to Philip Sheridan. His army occupied the city. There was martial law declared in this town. It is. There was a lot of yellow journals, especially out of town, talking about people getting hung and all this stuff. It's baloney. It was pretty docile. They set up a tent city for homeless people. They housed some homeless people. Lumber came to Chicago, and people, if they could show that they had a lot and they had the ability to build a house, they were given free lumber to build a house. Wow. Wow. By March of 1872, we had a harsh winter that year. Chicago had 20 miles of frontage of stone and brick buildings and tens of thousands of smaller wooden buildings built already. It must have been just miserable. Yes. Living in a tent city in the winter? It was, yeah. The poor people had to stand in line. First, they had to go through an inquisition to prove that they were truly in need. Then they had to stand along food lines. They had to search for places to stay. Water, of course, is the most precious thing in this, and they had to find water. Often in their camps, they're fighting off rats and dogs, also looking for food and water. And it's in great contrast to the people who are wealthy. One of the great books about that is Smoldering City that talks about the time after the fire. The Aid Society would go and deliver food to the rich people. The reasoning behind this was that poor people were used to hardship and the rich people weren't. Was there an inquest held as to the cause? There was, and that's the Richard Bales book. There's contradictory testimony. Some of it's incomplete. The problem was is that the fire department was heavily criticized after the fire. And again, some of it's that class warfare. Oh, the firemen were drunk and stuff. No, a lot of them were just exhausted from the previous night's fire. They were stung with cinders. Their eyes burned. I think the the inquiry was, was done in a way that was to protect the fire department even though it didn't really need protecting. It was a pretty good fire department, but they had some shortcomings, and most of it because of the politicians. Did a lot of people leave town? Certainly people left town, but other people came in. When they say 300 people died and only 120 bodies are recovered, we don't know if some of those people actually left town. But being so intense of a fire, entire families were incinerated, leaving no trace of their life or even their death. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how they even got to that estimate. Interesting thing is, is no firemen were killed. Well, you talked about them being exhausted. I was thinking about these California fires where these guys have worked three, four days without a break and, and how exhausted they look, lugging these hoses and the heat and they're wearing the gear. And You hear stories. One fireman talked about how he was trying to get close to the fire and a friend of his scavenged a door from a house and held it like a shield so they could get closer. But within a minute, the door burst into flame and he dropped it. Wow. Well, he stood there with his hose as long as he could and his helmet started to twist out of shape on his head and his clothes began to smolder. 
So these are really brave men. How does the city rebound so quickly? Do they get federal money? People even in cities would donate money. It was like an early GoFundMe. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> you right. know, seriously, people would just donate food, money, whatever, and they would send it to Chicago. But Chicago was an industry economic machine. It was going to be easy for it to get money yeah, and right. people to invest in it. All the Cook County records titles were destroyed. Oh, right. It's only because three abstract companies saved their records. They became legal documents a year later in court, and that's how people were able to establish title to their property. They get free wood for housing if you can build. It's one of the latest of these great fires, if not the latest of the great fires, and it wipes away the business district. And so it gives that a chance to really rebuild in a different way, revitalize. 13 years later, there's the steel frame, the home insurance building, the first steel frame building. That slate is wiped clean at a time when there's these technological revolutions in architecture that's going to build the city in a new way. And it keeps renewing itself a little larger, a few stories taller, a little larger, a few stories taller, every few years. And then you have men like Louis Sullivan and Daniel Burnham that step in. John Roots. William Baron Jenny, I think. Yes. Well, one of the donations I recall hearing about, the Queen of England donated a whole library of books to Chicago to replace what was lost in the fire, which ironically, Chicago didn't have a public library. No, Chicago had some people who had private collections <laughs> that would be opened up, but we didn't have a public free library. If you live on Hoyne Avenue, Thomas Hoyne presided over the meeting that created the Chicago Free Library. Oh, in fact, he wrote the first history of the library system in Chicago. There's only a few of those books left because people stole those books because there's a book plate from the Queen signed by the Queen. If you're looking in your attic and you find a book that has the Queen signed it, that was stolen from the Chicago Public Library. <laughs> you know. But Bill, the library's forgiving fines now, so you can return yes. the book. <laughs> yes. That's right. Or just, give it to me and I'll make sure it gets returned. <laughs> <laughs> Would you recommend people visit some of these sites? Go to the museum. Okay. Go to Chicago History Museum and see the stuff and walk through it and they talk about it. But it's the personal stories that get you engaged. Mm -hmm. So telling stories like Claire Innes and telling stories like Isaac Arnold and those kinds of stories are what's really going to engage people into finding interest in it, hopefully finding the love of the city and how it rebounded after that and the pride people had in their city. So that's where you're going to get people. A lot of people still reference Mrs. O'Leary's cow as the cause of the fire She's been exonerated. Can you speak to that little bit of history that's happened? Some years ago, she was exonerated. The barn had five animals in it. Cows, a horse, a calf, three tons of freshly delivered hay. It was a very tight fit. They didn't even milk the cows inside the barn. It was too tight of a fit. They milked them outside the barn. The kicking over the lantern, it's just not possible. More and more, I think people understand that. Was Catherine O'Leary a bit of a celebrity? She was hounded and destroyed by the press. She was a woman in like 40, but she was described as an old crone. Somebody said that she, she hadn't gotten her aid from the government, so that's why she started the fire. They would, often on the anniversary of the fire, they would get any old crone-looking woman, any old cow, put them together, take a picture, and say, this is Mrs. O'Leary and the cow. It wasn't her. And, of course, you know, her son, Big Jim O'Leary, was the gambling king for a while in Chicago, and he hated reporters, and he hated how his mother was hounded. She became a hermit and was really died a broken woman because of this. She was destroyed by the press at the time. People try to talk about press being bad now. The press isn't bad now. In those days, the press had no ethics whatsoever and would write anything they wanted. This has been great, Bill. You've been amazing. Bill, Thank you. thanks. Yeah, thanks for coming and joining thanks, us, the Windy City coming. Historians Podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Windy City Historians.
So, Patrick, what have we learned from this episode of the Windy City Historians podcast on the Great Chicago Fire? Don't play with matches? You're absolutely right. That is never a good idea. That's all right. Don't play with matches. Okay, I'll give you that. So that's number one. Don't play with matches. Don't, don't be an Irishman. I would say don't be Peg Leg Sullivan. Right. We've learned that the Chicago Fire has a double meaning in Chicago history. Number one, it was a tragedy. But it also became a symbol of hope and rebirth that out of tough times, a society can rise up out of the ashes like the phoenix. And that's always been a powerful symbol. Chicago has had a gut punch in the spring of 2020. We had COVID-19 pandemic descend on our city. And then, of course, at the beginning of this pandemic back in March of 2020, when Mayor Lightfoot declared that the city was basically shutting down, she reached into history and she talked about the fire. And when our city burned to the ground in a great fire, a fire that one historian noted started on DeCoven Street near Halstead and Roosevelt, and it burned over four square miles of our city from the central business district and government buildings, slum areas and neighborhoods of the wealthy, theaters, churches and sporting houses and more. We rose from the ashes the very next day to grow bigger and stronger than we had ever been before. Governor Pritzker, when he shut down Illinois, as he announced that Illinois was basically sheltering in place, he also reached back into history and he talked about the fire. About 150 years ago, the city of Chicago burned to the ground. When the ashes cleared, we passed laws requiring buildings be built with fireproof material. We invented skyscrapers. Chicago went from a small Midwest town to one of the biggest cities in the United States. And just to make a point, we built the Chicago Fire Academy on the very spot where the great Chicago fire started burning. So, Patrick, there it is, the Chicago fire as a symbol of hope, as expressed by Mayor Lightfoot and Governor Pritzker. Well, that symbol of a phoenix rising from the ashes or from the pandemic and hopefully coming back better and stronger than before. It is an inspirational metaphor and I think quite appropriate that both the governor and the mayor used it as a metaphor for hope. You need hope. Hopefully it continues to spring eternal. By the way, Patrick, I thought we should end this program on a more not only hopeful but maybe funny note. Let's do that by talking about Alderman Hilbreth and his idea of using dynamite to fight the fire. How does that work, Chris? Well, we'll find out. And I mean, what can go wrong? Sure. Patrick, right? What can go wrong with that? <laughs> sure. Fingers crossed. Let her rip. <laughs> so we'll end with that. Thank you for listening. There's a former alderman by the name of Hildreth who cons his way into getting 2,500 pounds of dynamite because he wants to create a fire break. Mm-hmm. But he's never blown up a building in his life. So his first few tries are dismal failures, but he's not the kind of guy that give up, so he's going to keep on blowing up things until he gets it right. They blow up every building on the north side of Harrison from state to Wabash, Wabash to Congress, and then down Congress to Michigan. More than likely, we can just look at him as sort of a menace. He was that kind of just busybody, former alderman kind of guy. That would have made a great Three Stooges sketch, I think. Yes. Right. <laughs> yes, it would have. You pumpkin brain! Audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Waveland Island Studios. And special thanks to Jill Hogginson for the idea and branding assistance and Nate Kennedy 
for technical support and specking our audio equipment. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast.